0: I also really hate this one piece of the crypto community where you had to worry about using the the word Bcash. You're like, oh oh, shit, okay, am I allowed to use that word on this podcast? Like, holy shit, no. So I I don't want to
1: trigger anyone. All right, guys, welcome to the Crypto Basic Podcast. My name is Michael Lockie. I'm going to be joined today by my co-host Brent Philbin. Hi I don't know why I'm waving and a very special guest James Duffy from the Loom Network how are you doing today James? I'm doing pretty good thanks for having me guys fantastic so this is gonna be our roundtable number seven and what we like to do with our roundtables is keep a little more free-flowing conversation really kind of easy going and let's just explore your specialties explore you know what brought you into crypto why you're here now what you think about the future. All these things that have come along. Let's get started with what are you working on mostly? What what do you spend most of your time working on within the Loom Network?
2: Yeah, so I run our marketing team. So yeah, I'm in charge of our content production, um, you know, our social campaigns, community engagement stuff like that. And then I'm also co-founder of Loom Network. So me and the other two co-founders, Matt and Luke. We, you know, kind of drive the direction of the company and kind of what our core vision is and where we're heading.
0: Okay, that so that that makes you as important as it gets in the Loom Network and and everything around it, right? Like, that's uh, uh,
2: yeah, I you're guess the you authority.
0: Could say that. <laughs> All right, so I before we even go a little bit crazier later into the episode, I need to ask: Do you play Magic: The Gathering, or did you play it?
2: Yeah, I did in middle school, probably <laughs> for around two years.
0: Like, did you get, like, real into it? Go to all, of, like, the, the local tournaments and all that kind of thing? Or
2: No, I didn't. I was mostly just, like, a skip, launch, and play with my friends kind of player. Um, I did have what I thought was, like, a, a pretty massive collection, but probably pales in comparison to, like, a, a actual competitive Magic player. But, yeah, I still have, like, a big box of cards sitting in my parents' house back in Virginia. Jeez. But I... When I was like, Ooh, are these things worth anything? I did look online. I'm like, no, I don't think I had this card. I definitely didn't have this one. So maybe <laughs> there's something in there that's worth something.
0: <laughs> there's so many random little cards that ended up being worth so much money. I mean, there's cards I remember writing on as like you write on them as proxies until you actually get the card and you put them in your deck. And I find out that card's worth like $150. Like <laughs> later on in life, so really, yeah. That, but that's, that's the how, other
2: thing is I definitely didn't take good care of them, so mine are all probably beat up and white around the edges.
0: <laughs>
2: that's how that's how Mike
0: and I met, and I just I was watching one of your other interviews, and you described um, Zombie Battlegrounds specifically as a Magic Gathering style game, and I was like, oh man, I got to ask about that. I want to I want to know if uh, want to know if we got some more magic going on here. Well, we'll have a different kind of magic. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so so yeah, James. I- I actually got a question for you here. Um, one of the things we like to ask our guests when they come on is like, did you, did you have like your aha moment in crypto? Did you have something that that really like changed your perspective so much that, you know, you then decided that this you were going to be confident this was going to be a
2: part of your future? Yeah, well, it kind of started with my co-founder, Luke. So he's an old friend of mine. I've known him for maybe three or four years now, um, just kind of through a network of friends throughout Asia. And yeah, I had traveled to Bangkok uh, mid 2017. And I had met up with him. And I was hanging out with him and a couple other friends. And they were working on a a different blockchain startup. Uh, It was Blockmason. And he was their lead developer. And at the time, I'd been invested in Bitcoin since around 2013. I was really bullish on Bitcoin. And it was through talking to them. That I was like, oh, there's all these changes. There's this Ethereum thing now. And I was like really skeptical and really inquisitive. So I was just asking a lot of questions. Um and, and yeah, I was kind of watching the space since that. And then um I stayed in touch with him. And then when he finished his contract with Blockmason, he was like, I you know, I wanna do this other startup because like there's a real problem with scalability and then also with, you know, the user interface side of Ethereum. Um and I was I I was just totally on board at that point because I'd been reading about this stuff constantly. And when I should have been doing other work, I was like, would wake up in the morning and just like read Ethereum articles all day long. So I was like, absolutely. Let's do it. I'm fully on board. And then, yeah, just to complete the, the origin story is then our third co-founder, Matt, was another friend of Luke's. Um, and he had been in a similar situation where. He was messing around with building some Ethereum dApps. Um, he's like a super hardcore developer. So he was doing, you know, like SSH key management on the blockchain, things like that, like developer tools. And he was running into the same issues where he's like, Ethereum as it is is not very usable uh, due to costs, due to speed and, you know, just caps and transaction volume. You can't offer free trials to your users because they have to pay transaction fees. Um, so he was just in the same position where, as soon as Luke mentioned it to him, he's like, "Yeah, absolutely, let's do this." And yeah, that was kind of the the catalyst.
0: You used the used the term there that John Oliver ripped EOS a new one for this one, but it, it was so funny because it's a real thing. Like usability matters, and it is Ethereum is not usable as kind of what you want it to be usable as, right? <clears throat> like you you've created this super. Awesome, you know, group of side chains that you're kind of working on that leverage the plasma network and create like that usability and make it go together. So that's usability or scalability and uh and you 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 pick the two. I I, I should have wrote them down. It's so early in the morning for me. <laughs> so James is in Korea and we're over here in the U.S. So. Listeners know that I, yeah. you can tell when I'm awake and, and we tell when I'm not. And I use, you, you said use, you, you said scalability and one other thing. And they're like the primary things that I think of when I think of problems with Ethereum, Usability. even though I love, use, yeah, you, even though I love Ethereum. So the, they're, they're definitely the two primary fe- pieces. But I also want to go back to one other thing you said that it was very casual. You were like, yeah, I was just in Bangkok in, uh, you know, whatever, whatever year it was. Were you living there? Were you traveling there? Were you kind of doing like the Southeast Asia uh, backpack road
2: trip kind of thing? Or what was going on? Um, Let me think if there was an original reason for me to be there. Um, So, I mean, I've lived in Seoul in Korea for the past 10 years. Luke was living in Osaka. I originally met him in Osaka and he was working out of Bangkok. I can't remember if I had some other like reason I was going to Bangkok. I think it was for a conference, possibly. Um, Anyway, and I was just hanging out with them for around a week. So, yeah, I don't know. The, I guess the expat community across Asia is kind of a tight knit community through conferences and, you know, entrepreneurs and whatnot. So, kind of like a lot of people are a friend of a friend in some way. And yeah, there's just kind of a network throughout Asia. And coincidentally, Bangkok has now seemingly become like a hub for, crypto startups there's just there's tons of blockchain projects um that are just in and around Bangkok. Uh, that's awesome. I am I I am literally in the
0: middle of planning a very long trip that starts in Bangkok. I'm going to be there for uh for clan which is their uh, their new year. But the the thing that really excites me is that Bangkok was basically super anti crypto, right? <laughs> like the uh, like a year ago they were they just finally got Nice about that. So, if there is a lot of startups there,
2: that's even more exciting. But yeah, I think OmiseGo, you know, is one of the <clears throat> most prominent, you know, ICOs and crypto uh, projects, and they're based out of Bangkok. They're actually, I think, I think um, they were founded by or related to a Thai company, which is Omise. So, um, our logic was kind of the Thai government is going to like want this company to succeed, so they're probably not going to have you know really harsh anti crypto laws. <clears throat> Oh, that I
0: I now we did it. We did a show on Omisego and I can't I think I met offhand mentioned that they were Thailand, but I didn't realize the implication of of a uh, of a Thai company when there were some definite like issues with the Thai government and and cryptocurrency that that evolved and seemed to be gotten rid of. I know what they're doing now is they're like uh, you know, the, you have to be approved as a an ICO for investors to come into you and I guess, you know, I can't really I can't really be too upset about that because ICOs are a little bit dangerous. Um but you also just mentioned that you were in Korea for 10 years before that. Like what what drew you there? What made that kind of part of your life?
2: Yeah, so it was originally me and a friend graduated university. We wanted to kind of travel around the world. We had no money. Um where we planned out this epic world trip and then realized hey, this is going to cost a lot of money. <laughs> Um, so I knew a friend who was teaching English in Japan. We were like, Hey, let's teach English for a year in Asia. We can save up money for a year and then, you know, do a trip around Southeast Asia. Um, I did that first year and I just really loved living in Seoul. So <clears throat> I was like, I don't really want to leave here. Um, but then of course I didn't want to, you know, be teaching as a career. So that kind of forced me cause it's hard to find other jobs as a foreigner in Korea kind of forced me to like look online and, you know, kind of start my own online business. So yeah, then I just kind of got into entrepreneurship and um, really like my lifestyle in Seoul. So I just never ended up leaving. I haven't found another city yet that I like more than Seoul as a place to live.
0: Uh, that that sounds pretty. That sounds pretty good. It really because, excited right now. I uh, listen. <laughs> uh, it it it's South Southeast Asia and uh, <clears throat> Asia in general. I just haven't been there yet and when I' examined my life I realized everything that I like is Asian like my girlfriend's Thai all the food that I prefer is you know starting with starts with Jap- starts with Japanese goes to Korean maybe comes to Thai after that so it's like I don't know what I'm doing here but I'm still I'm still <laughs> stuck here like an idiot um,
2: nice. Well, but definitely jealous yeah, maybe, of Yeah, maybe he'll never end up coming back and then you'll have to do your podcast <laughs> with like a 12-hour time difference. That's all right. Yeah. That actually would work better. He would probably rather do
1: it at like 2 a.m. but I'd rather do it at 2 p.m. So like, yes, that could actually work out great. I've, I went to
0: bed at like 4 a.m. our time and I was like, man, I wonder, if, like, I could probably wake Mike up and be like, hey, let's see if James is awake right now. Let's just do this so I don't have to wake up at 8 a.m.
1: <laughs> so James actually... It was really interesting that you were able to to organically bring up a, a another coin and have positive things to say about it with the Misigo. And one of the things we like to t- uh to ask our guests, um, as much as you feel comfortable answering this, and this is a reminder we don't we don't care about price in any way. We don't speculate on prices, but just for a fun exercise, if you had to pick five coins and hold them for 10 years, can't trade them, can't do anything, uh, is there five coins that you would be willing to hit your wagon to? Oh, man. Which, so, of course,
0: is not financial advice. <laughs> Nobody here is financial <laughs> advice. So,
2: I'm actually the wrong person to ask here because all of my time is spent working on Loom. Um, Fair enough. I don't have the time to actually research all these other projects. Um So, I mean, the obvious ones are Bitcoin and Ethereum. I think, I think they're both here to stay. Um, I think the privacy coins like have a, have a good use case because they solve a problem that's not solved by Bitcoin or or Ethereum currently. Um, in terms of like, so I can tell you you projects that I like what they're doing. I like what they're working on. I like the technology. I like the problem they're solving, but in terms of like, token utility and velocity and that that's like a whole different topic and i'm not the right person to ask about that because again i don't have the eight hours a day to spend like reading about different projects and and pick out the ones that i i think are have a good token model that's actually a big reason why we started this podcast so we could force
1: ourselves to sit down and get together and kind of learn learn through this with each other because you're right it is a massive time investment to do that so totally understandable uh, one of my notes said you had a, a partnership with a company in China called Cocos. Um, is there any, like any depth to that you could touch on what that experience has
2: been like for you guys? Yeah. So I don't know that I would call it, I don't like the word partnership because yeah. it gets thrown around a lot in the crypto space and it doesn't really mean anything. It's like company A shook hands with company B and then both companies made an announcement to try to make themselves look good or, or, or crypto company. Published their app on some famous app store like, like Amazon's, you know, Amazon or Microsoft. Right. And then called that a partnership. Um, so in the case of Coco's, uh, yeah, um, I think Luke had met with them or Luke had, had talked with them and, you know, they are a, um, a game platform like Unity that's really popular in China. And basically, they built an SDK to integrate with Loom DApp Chain. So anyone who who's using Cocos, they could use a Loom DApp Chain as their backend. So it, I guess it's a partnership in the sense that they they did the work to to integrate with yeah. us. But um, yeah, again, I, I I'm just okay. Uh, actually, about using the word right, right, no, 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 no
1: no no. I I in hindsight, I totally understand why that was a poor word choice. Um, so I guess maybe. Maybe elaborate a little more what like my notes say that they they're China's largest mobile game platform they have over a hundred million monthly users and six hundred million users overall, which I mean that is a tagline that I find very intriguing and very interesting so I guess more so is like um what are what what problem are they solving or what like mutual beneficial situation came from I, I guess are they a software development company that is uh, using an SDK to go f- from another language into Solidity? Is
2: that what I understand? No. So basically, they're they're a game development platform. So if you want to build a game, just take blockchain out of the picture for a second, you're not going to want to code your entire game from scratch and write your own physics engine mm-hmm. and like basically, you'd be reinventing the wheel. So there's a couple popular game SDKs. Um, Unity is, is the most popular worldwide, at least for mobile. There's Unreal Engine. Um, you know, which is basically came out of Unreal Tournament. And then they're like, Hey, we built all of this stuff. We could like offer this as a product, um, to game developers. And then there's Cocos, which is huge in China and probably some other countries in Asia. And so basically they already have a bunch of game developers who are building games using their SDK or their platform <laughs> to make their lives easier. And what, what they built is a way for these game developers to integrate with a Loom dApp chain. So instead of using a server as their backend, they would be using a dApp chain as their backend. And we did the same thing with Unity. We built a Unity SDK because our idea is um, you don't want to just take the the group of, of blockchain developers of people who are already interested in blockchain development and um and just limit yourself to that audience. Our idea is let's bring in these traditional development audiences who are people who are already building games and let's make it as easy as possible for them to make their game run on the blockchain instead of a, a traditional server. And then we're also interested in showing these people. Hey, this is why you should do this. This is the benefits of running your game on the blockchain, um, and there's this hungry audience of users who like really, really want these games. Um, so yeah, that's just kind of like a, a piece of our our larger vision. So I'm gonna we think that getting yeah yeah. Go, I, go I
0: was gonna I was gonna push a little bit there. Is CryptoKitties part of your part of your pitch? to those to those groups like do you kind of show them like look what happened with this stupid ass game that (laughs) finally started to work on the blockchain people start went nuts
2: (laughs) yeah so i think that's the most prominent example that we've had so far um and that's been the largest you know dap or game that that caught on that really you know hit peak usage and showed that people were were like there's actually something here people are willing to spend large sums of money in some cases to acquire a piece of digital property. And it's barely a game, right? I mean, it's a a game in the sense that you get a cat and then you can reproduce that cat and then sell the offspring. But, you know, there's not much of a gamification element to it. Um, So, but I think that that was such an important moment in, in crypto and for Ethereum to show like people actually really care about this thing. Um, and I think it inspired a lot of people, us included, you know, we based our code school crypto zombies off of CryptoKitties. Um, and yeah, we've seen like a lot of most of what we've seen in Ethereum gaming so far has been kind of CryptoKitties clones that then add additional functionality on top of that. Um, so yeah, I think they definitely like it was an important milestone and they definitely led the way.
0: I, I went through this whole like, so I didn't find out about CryptoKitties until it was like it already blown up, right? So I'm like, well, I guess I better do some research on this. Thing. <clears throat> it, it, going into that, I was like, these things are tamagotchis on the blockchain, right? That's basically what they are. Like you, <clears throat> you feed them, you breed them, and they make. But you don't even do that. You didn't even do that. It was literally <clears throat> like you got them together and they made a baby. And I, I was, I was like, man, I don't. This is crazy. See, that's the thing with all the research that we do and all of the thoughts that we have on different chains, different D apps the one the one that took off made no sense it was just dumb and I, and i think that like a lot of, that's going to happen it's not going to be dumb necessarily but it's going to be a real like surprise when something takes off so it's uh it's so hard to predict and you just have to kind of put the pieces out there that put you in the position to be the one that the that the world is like oh let's start using that so
2: well yeah i think this happens in a lot of um technology though like there's a quote from Chris Dixon, where he said um, the next big thing will start off looking like a toy. And I think this happens in a lot of areas where like revolutionary technology, when it first comes out, people are like, what? That's dumb. Why would you use that? That's stupid. I think people said this, you know, for like, um, I, I said this when I first saw the iPad, I was like, this is just a yep. big, big iPod touch. Why would you want to use this? Uh, and now I have was, one. I mean, like, it, was, I it was worst a like, iPod.
1: It. it was a worse iPod and it was also a worse laptop at the time. Like it just didn't make any sense. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that so so you you
0: you're in you're in Korea, which is like a hub for kind of esports, right? Are you involved in any Like, are you involved in esports gaming either as a player or as, like, any sort of uh, promoter, broadcaster, or anything like that?
2: Uh, No, I'm not. But um, just being here, I have met some of those guys over the years. And um, funny enough, like, uh, over the poker table, because I used to play poker, and a lot of the guys who came to Korea as professional gamers then transitioned into poker. It was, like, kind of interesting. But no, me personally, I don't um, have any background in competitive gaming. Or esports? Uh, do you know Elky? Or- um, I, I I may have met him like years ago. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he's the for what the a listeners. Legend. Elky is like the prime. He's like, he was yeah. He was like a legend in poker that came over from being one of the best Starcraft players on the planet. So we, I, I for some reason somehow skipped the fact that you were a poker player and that and I went right to Magic the Gathering. But that's a much easier way I- to make the connection between us. <laughs>
2: But that was actually one of the things that like intrigued me when Michael first reached out to me because he like he's like he had this like list of things. I was like, Oh, we have a lot of overlap actually. <laughs> and that's what I felt too when
1: I saw a couple of your interviews and even when I saw the project itself, I was like, Man, this I, I like where they're coming from on a lot of these things. That's why I, I went so far to reach out to you because I knew this would come out as excellent as it is so far. Um already. Cool. <clears throat> so so what is your poker background? Let's let's yeah, dive good. into that a little bit. I, I, like the three of us met at, in 2007 because all three of us were working as poker dealers at a track. And since then we've all played semi-professionally since then, or worked in the casino industry. And, you know, we credit poker for a vast majority of, of what our game theory is based off of and our decision-making in life. And even, you know, the way we kind of construct this podcast, it had a massive impact on our life. so, you know, if, if you feel like it, want to dive into a little bit about what your poker background was like.
2: Yeah, I would say so. My poker background, my time playing poker was was short and epic. <laughs> so, as I said, when I first came over here, I was uh, teaching English um, for that first year. Towards the end of that, I met a a friend, and he was like, he was a poker player. Um, among other things. And he was like, my major was actually math and university. And we talked about like a bunch of different topics. And he's like, Hey, have you ever played poker? Um, and I was like, Yeah, a bit in college. And he's like, Oh, you should come. You know, I play at the casino, blah, blah, blah. So he brought me out. And, um, yeah, I had, I had like never really played competitively before that. But, um, I guess I, uh, had like a lucky first, first run at the casino and then I was hooked. So then I like spent all my hours like diving into poker knowledge and probability tables and all that stuff um and yeah i had like a i had like a really good run and life was great and then i was like i was like yeah i was calculating my long-term profitability based on a short-term uh stint and then um i later found out that that was part of a hot streak and then the cold streak hit and the cold streak like lasted for longer than I I thought would be mathematically possible in terms of, you know, you're like, you just, you cannot win any hand. It doesn't matter what you go all in with. You have, you know, you're like way ahead to win. And I would just be like, oh, he's, he's gonna hit his flush draw. It doesn't matter. And then boom, hits the flush draw. So anyway, um, that my, yeah. So when I, like, I kept very good stats when I was playing poker. And then when I like went over everything in the end, I was a profitable poker player. Um, but when I calculated my long-term profitability playing at the tables, it was like worse than I was making teaching English. So I was like, well, this is very fun. I think in terms of like a career one, it's very stressful. And then, um, you have to play at, you know, such a high limit to be able to hit like a, a good hourly rate. I felt that I was like, okay, yeah, th- this is kind of like, not what I want to do as a career that hit home very hard. Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they- but actually I, I learned like a lot of things playing poker that I feel like I've taken to other areas of life. Um just in terms of like, like yeah, you you really understand probability on a deep level when you've played, you know, tens of thousands of hands the of poker. The incentive <laughs> model is large
1: enough for you to actually like have to figure out what, you know, the variability looks like and in- You know, we, when you dangle a large enough piece of fruit, AKA enough money, well, then yeah, it's easy to get excited about every little, you know, turn
2: percentages and stuff that it's, it's easy to overlook sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. But then I've taken that to like so many areas of life where I'm looking at things and I'm like, oh, what a lot of people attribute to success in a lot of cases is just, you know, mathematical variance, equity analysis.
0: Uh, we, we apply that a lot to the, Mm To the trading field. Like 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 Mike said earlier, we think that most of the time we don't like to talk about the price of coins. Uh, technical analysis to us is very kind of pseudoscience-y almost. And we understand from poker that there are plenty of people who, when put in a situation where variance is the primary thing that they're dealing with, are going to come out on top, but... You don't know if it's skill or you don't know if they just happen to be running good for the moment. So, and there's until you get a massive sample size, there's almost no way to tell. It works the same way in managed funds in the stock market. Very often you'll see the ones that perform the best perform the worst, you know, once you go look back at the data, but there's no way to know when that's going to happen. So, the other thing that, that I had go into my head while you were saying that is I'm wondering if you had the same kind of thing happen to you in life. When I spend money, I go. Way above and beyond to find the best deal on things. Like I'll go on slick deals, I'll go on different th- three different airline sites to find like a two hundred and ten dollar flight versus a two hundred and thirty dollar flight. But when I'm playing poker, that does not exist even a little bit, and I'm just sitting there like throwing money around, you know, tipping tipping cocktail people twenty dollars for no reason. I, I I don't know if you ended up having that same thing happen to you.
2: Yeah. I mean, I guess when you're on a hot streak on poker, like I was saying, you're projecting like, this is my, this is how much I'm going to earn in a day. And so you're just like, yeah, I can spend money. Awesome. And then, uh, <clears throat> yeah, no, that, yeah, that did definitely happen to me for a short period of time. Um, and then I had to like, after I like went broke, <laughs> I had to like re-educate myself on the value of a dollar. <laughs> Cause I like, mean, a friend, me and my friend, we used to joke, we're like, like bro, that's just like um, that's just a min raise, you know. Yeah, <laughs> we would measure things. Uh, that's just that's just three big blinds.
0: I. <laughs> uh, All right.
1: What about <laughs> credit card game? Did... That's where I was gonna go. That's my next question. <laughs> oh, I'm real. sorry. So I'm sorry. Get out of no, no, I
2: steal it. Are you talking about like the points?
1: No, 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 uh, no. Oh no! All right, it. you go out to dinner with three of your friends and. At the end of the when the bill comes, you have the understanding that everybody's going to put in a credit card, and then the server is going to randomly pick one, and that person pays
2: for the whole bill. I've never heard of this before. Whoa!
1: This is the best. This is the best going out game ever. You just you uh, a very poker player thing. It is. It is a very poker. All my non poker friends think I'm insane. It's the best way to settle a bill at a restaurant. You're just nice and clean, quick, one person pays for it, the other three get to celebrate, the server gets a laugh. It's like a total win for all parties. Interesting. Yep.
2: I'll have to try this one.
0: It, it's it's more efficient, it's faster. Like in theory, it works out in the long run is the neutral expected value. And the and the, the fun yeah, you will, you do the cards, and then whoever loses, everybody's like, ah, <laughs> and they like make fun of them. So the, the person that loses you know they they have to participate in the like the fun part, so it doesn't even feel that bad. It's not like you just lost two hundred dollars. You uh you you're just you get to watch to all your friends
1: it. rub it in your face too. Yeah, it sounds about right. <laughs> all right, let's get a little more on topic here. Um, I participated in the Kickstarter for Zombie Battlegrounds. Um, I have awesome. accessed the alpha release, and I will be honest, the Gameplay ability and the graphics moderately exceeded my expectations, um, just in a sense maybe that I was just keeping my expectations tempered. Product's excellent so far. I'm not a huge fan of the current model. Is uh, It's playing against the computer artificial intelligence. That doesn't personally do much for me, but I know the other releases are coming soon. So is there anything behind the scenes that's extra exciting for you or anything going on within that game that you feel like sharing anything that you want to
2: touch on? Yeah. So the game zombie battleground is, is our main focus right now inside the company. And um, we can go into later why that is, but um, so yeah, that's the majority of our, our 70 person team right now, their energies are devoted towards the game. Um, So yeah, as you said, it's an alpha game right now. Features are not fully fleshed out. Um, Yeah, the the closed alpha right now is is uh, just PVE, just against an AI opponent. But our philosophy is to ship things really quickly and then to start having people actually use them and then to get user feedback from day one. Is this what people really want? Is what we followed on all of our products. Like we ship things extremely quickly um, and then we iterate from there. So here, yeah, it's like we want to make sure that this game is as good as possible when we release it. So we wanted to get it in the, the Alpha Tester's hands as early as possible to start getting their feedback on balance issues and bugs and things like that. Um, and yeah, we'll be doing a, a release at least once per month that will add, you know, fix bugs, add new features. And um, we're looking at a closed beta release of like the the basically full version of the game in terms of like PVP um you know with a ladder system towards the end of this year
0: that's exciting are you even though you don't really play magic anymore are you familiar with how big of a shit show magic online became even though it was such a great base game
2: no what happened
0: it just they they had this amazing game that they had <clears throat> like in cards in front of you and for the longest time just magic online's development was pushed off to the side or something they just did a very poor job of making it a fun experience uh, uh, online, kind of ruined their online interaction, ruined their entire online economy, and I couldn't help but think I wish somebody could have forked Magic Online. Now that I like understand how forks go, <laughs> and I'm reading that that's just available on on the Loom Network. Like if that is, you're like if that happens, if the developer decides this, we're gonna make this stop caring about this game. We're going to make this game shit. You can just fork it and start developing it yourself. That's like, if I understood it correctly, that seems super awesome to me to have that ability, even though in theory, that would be counterintuitive to your (coughs) personal interest as the developer.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think actually it's going to be hard to see some of these, the big game companies, at least probably won't adopt that model really quickly, but there are some benefits as a developer. So for one, there's a huge history of modding in games Mm-hmm. You know player mods of games turning into like you know which is essentially a fork um essentially these mods turning into games that were just as big if not bigger than the original game so if you build as a developer if you build your game on the blockchain, you're kind of opening your game up to this mod like infinite modability um which could actually your users could come up with something better than you originally came up with and then the community just grows around that. Yeah, it's um, a, lot a lot of free marketing
1: too. It's a lot of free advertising, a lot of free marketing. Like I just see so many benefits
2: from it. Yeah, it's definitely highly experimental. It's going to take some time to see, you know, game companies really take advantage of this. And But I think it's just like the CryptoKitties. We're just waiting for that CryptoKitties moment when that first game comes out that really blows up. And other companies see, oh, wow, here's an opportunity for us to make a lot of money by building a game on the blockchain. We think it'll be like another App Store rush. If you were one of the first people to release an app on Apple's App Store when they first created it, like that guy who made that $10,000 app that did nothing.
0: The baller app or whatever it was called. I am rich. Yeah, there's
2: opportunity, right? You can um, be one of the first and early adopter to tap into a market that's going to blow up. So yeah, we kind of want to pave the way for other developers and then give them the tools to, to be able to build these games.
0: Yeah, like Fruit Ninja. Does, if Fruit Ninja comes out today, who cares about Fruit Ninja? But everybody had it on their original iPad because it was one of the exactly. first games. Yeah there's,
2: that so much, it. yeah, there's so much competition in most of these established markets that it's really hard as a newcomer to stand out and, and get seen. Um, but, you know, that's that's one of the things that blockchain games are going to offer because we already have this passionate core group of users that really wants to play blockchain games and they're willing to spend sixty a hundred thousand dollars on a CryptoKitty, you know.
0: <laughs> There's also this really unique thing that that blockchain appears to have a, it appears to be able to provide and you've you mentioned it in one of the interviews that I watched you do before and that is taking an item from and, and we talked about this in Engine as well when we talked about engine when we did their 101. Taking an item from one game and using it in another game because the the game developers decided to cooperate with each other and have the ability the ability to move that item between games. So now when that's like life, right? Like if I go to if I go to a game store, I can put my little playmat out and play Magic the Gathering or I can put my playmat out and I can play what are the other games? Like uh, Yu-Gi-Oh, Pokémon, something like that, and I can use that same playmat b- both games, but I can't use the cards. So there's a it's a that's a super unique use case that I think will really push things forward when that's when that's out there and multiple companies are cooperating together
2: yeah two really cool tangents there or kind of subsets of that so for one we we're talking about forkability modability take our game zombie battleground um a, a, someone could fork that and use the same cards but change the rules say they're like, oh this card is overpowered in in my version of the game you know this card's not allowed or maybe we we're gonna change the stats on it um or you could totally change the rules of oh, the overlords, you know, like the the heroes that the, you know, your main character that you have to kill your opponent to win the match to be like, oh, they're going to have twice as much health in this version of the game because it kind of changes the dynamics. It's kind of like when you played Magic the Gathering, you might have house rules where you're like, yeah, you just for your you and your particular group of friends, there's a set of rules that you agree on. Um, you can do that, you know, with these kind of forks, so that's really cool. And then the other aspect is um you could do things like if a company has two games, they could actually you could find an item in one game that has no use in that game, but then it's usable in the other game. Oh um, wow. Yeah. So say you have like an RPG or you know, an MMORPG mm-hmm. or a side scroller or something like that, and in it it's like, oh, you found five zombie battleground cards and you're like, What what the hell are these? Like and it has no use in the game, but then you find out, oh, I can actually collect things in this game that they can like, you know, improve my deck in the other game, for example. Um, or if you, you know, cause the blockchain enables that sort of shared assets mm-hmm. between games. You could find, um, I think a really cool idea, um, which I'm talking to this uh, Korean AR VR project called Mossland about. So I said, so guys make, make an, an AR like augmented reality application where Companies can airdrop tokens in, in the real world, like people. It's like uh, Pokemon Go. But people could actually be going around, like finding real tokens or real game items that they're like, "What is this?" And then they, you know, they research it, and then they would find out more about the game. They could use it in, for example, there's some really <laughs> cool possibilities. Oh, that's- yeah. Okay, so super fascinating
1: part about that. So one of the game theory models that I see a lot in mobile gaming is to restrict the timing of the ability to play the game. So for example, you may run out of lives and you may have to wait until you regenerate lives or, um, oh, whatever, but <laughs> that, games. but that model is so valuable because it makes you want more. It leaves you wanting more, and that's why you come back and get it. Um,
0: <clears throat> let's go candy crush. Uh, I, I actually had, um, I had, a, I had a comment on that. Kareem would be like freaking out when I say his comment too, because the Witcher is his favorite game of all time. And inside the Witcher, they kind of force you to play this card game called Gwent, that is like kind of a cool game, but you have to play it in, you have to like go around in the Witcher and collect the cards, right? How awesome would it be if when you if you're like, man, I kinda like that game, but whatever, it's the Witcher. Like I'm not I'm trying to fight like monsters. I'm not trying to play card games with people's people in pubs, but it's a cool game. And then you get off there and you find out all the cards that you just collected are now available to you on this game that is on the blockchain and because you've managed to like mine these cards or collect these cards uh, in the witcher now you can go actually play the game with people who also agree with you that it was a cool game. That's like awesome. There and that's so, yeah, the Witcher's also... not the only game that's done that. There's right. multiple games that have like a game built into them where you have to collect the cards.
2: We're, we're all really excited here. We're trying to talk <laughs> at the same time. Yeah sorry no, no, I know, you... I, I... <laughs> And also also the economies could be really interesting here. So this is something that we've I've talked a lot with my co-founders about, but we haven't written that much about is how do you build these in-game economies that really take advantage of the blockchain? Uh, this is this just came to me right now when you were talking about that. So say the only way to get cards was from you know the, this card game within a game or, or collecting them in this game, but not all players who play the card game want to play that you know monster hunter game or whatever. Um, so. The players in that game co- could collect the cards and then have a marketplace where they sell them, right? And then the players in the card game would be buying it from them. Um, yeah, there, there's just like a lot of like really insanely cool possibilities where you've had games with, with resource balances before, but you could actually build it, build a real economy by some people have control of the production of that, and then other people have control of the production of other resources, and they actually have to trade. All right, so.
1: My brain went a bunch of places. You're, you were absolutely right when you said we're all getting excited because I had this crazy pitch, all right? So what happens when we have a VR world and you can do very, like, simple uh, – it's like a simple game. It's like almost like Sims. You just have a person in a VR world and you can find items. You can just do stuff. And then, like, the world itself, every, like, building – Is just its own company doing its own game or its own part of this world. And they're all completely separate. They're unrelated. They can be, you know, anybody can have a a world here. There's one global currency for the entire thing and any asset or that the business provides. They could trade with other businesses. They could, you know, card games or, you know, I, I've always had this vision of a, a casino chain or like a a gaming chain that, you know, poker, poker could have a huge benefit from. So there could be a big casino in this VR world with, you know, that would be obviously a great idea for anybody that wants to build that, you know, a shooting range. You could have like a military. There's just so many like ways you could just combine all of these sub games into one platform. And who knows how many of those items could interact with each other. Possibilities are endless.
2: Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And I think that's like, one of the most intriguing visions. And I think it's really hard to create that system from a centralized top down perspective. Um, cause tra- just traditionally, you know, cities don't emerge from one central planner being like, okay, we're going to build the perfect system. They're these just like dirty organic things that, that just kind of emerge through the interaction of a lot of people and economies and incentives. So that's why I think once someone creates, yeah, this digital avatar, that persists on the blockchain, and then they make it so other game creators can utilize that avatar. That, that's how something like um, uh, Ready Player One, that sort of world, I think that's how it would emerge. Because no one wants to build on someone else's system. No one wants to build on a, expand on a world that some company owns. When you put this stuff on the blockchain, now, it's like, oh, I'm a game developer. If I build this this extra city or this extra world uh, and let players import their characters into it, I'm tapping into that entire community of people who are already playing that first game. And I know that's not going to get shut down because they own their characters on the blockchain. I know some company is not going to pull the plug on their API and, and my game is just worthless. Mm. So yeah, I think that's how these type of like really amazing um, experiences that no one really, like, anticipated are or, or going to emerge out of this.
0: Yeah, I so I'm thinking back to kind of, like, my gaming experience in life, and there was a game that... It was the only MMORPG that I ever tried. There was... EverQuest was, like, the big one at the time. And then a new one came out called Asheron's Call, and I was like, all right, I'm going to, like, get involved in this game because I'm way too behind on catching up to anybody in EverQuest, so I'm going to try this game. And then that game was pretty defunct pretty quickly, so it, it's, like, now... You don't have to worry about investing all your time into that one game, and then it just dying, and then that's it. You, uh, you can, you, you can invest your time in that game that dies. All right. Well, I've got all these things that I can transfer to another game that I've sunk time into. So, as time becomes more of a commodity, I think that that's more important.
2: Yeah, exactly. And each of these <clears throat> game creators could could set their own rules for their world. So, say they could decide which items they allow and don't allow. So, say you're in some like first person shooter type world and you've collected all these all these guns in your arsenal but then you go in this other world and the creator's like nope this is a medieval world like guns don't don't work here they don't exist you know and then you're like uh you know you could still have the same inventory but they could kind of pick and choose what rules they wanted to respect
0: and and now instead of the class of like wizard or mage you have the class of like first person shooter uh, modern or first-person shooter futuristic or first-person <clears throat> shooter medieval. That's kind of cool. You know, you'd have to specialize in a certain kind of game. And then when you're trading or when you're signing up for different teams in the esports world, you you have different specializations and whatever. It mimics the real world. That's that's what I was thinking. When you're saying you can take a card in one game that's only available in that game, sell it to people who play the the game where the card matters – but they don't like your game. You don't like their game. But you're selling to them that to. The, the thing that popped into my head was like oil. Like, yeah, you can go get oil from only certain parts of the world and then sell it to the people that need it and and make a profit mm. that way. So
1: that's uh. So, I just want to give a personal experience on something we you were touching on recently about uh, being willing to invest in games and and then deciding to quit them. I did, so I decided, all right, let me check this out. I spent some money, spent some time, quickly realized I was really behind uh I was gonna need to spend a decent amount more to just get caught up to build competitive decks to then see if I liked the game, so I ended up in you know like a three month span spending like you know one to two hundred and not getting much out of it, whereas I wouldn't have mind investing a little more if I had the ability to say, get something back if I decided I didn't like it. And just the freedom of having an open marketplace is going to allow people like myself to say, you know what? I have these Loom tokens. Uh, I just cashed them out from another game. Let me check this new game out. Let me buy some items. Let me feel, you know, get a pulse for the community, whatnot. If I love it, great. I may invest more. I may take a little bit out. You know, that's up to me. But- you know, having that freedom would have gone a long ways with my experience with something like Hearthstone.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, cause that's how it works in the real world. You know, if you get into photography, for example, you buy a camera, well, you know that you can at least sell that camera for what, 50, 75% minimum of yeah, whatever. The price you paid for it. So it's like, Oh, if I, if this hobby's not for me and I quit it, I'm not like, I'm not flushing that money down the toilet. Um, Whereas like from the game company's perspective in the current model, they're incentivized to not enable that because they want to make as much money as possible. So, um, you know, it's like and you were saying the other game model to like limit how often you can play because they want people to pay money to get more hearts or whatever. Um, and, you know, Hearthstone is like a billion dollar A year game, something like that in revenue. So, so maybe, maybe we're just dumb and missing out on a huge money opportunity. But our idea is, and this is very experimental, is well, what if we make the game so it's not pay to win? So you can be competitive without ever spending a cent on buying packs from us. But, you know, we take a small commission on all the marketplace transactions and we let players trade freely. Well, that itself could turn into, a massive model of ongoing revenue, if the if the game and the marketplace are popular enough, and then it's kind of a limitation that if you put that on yourself, it forces you to be more creative. And okay, as a company, how can we monetize this thing? So we we have we tossed around a bunch of like really interesting ideas. Um, just one example of that is like, oh well, what if we create some artists can actually submit their art artwork for cards, and then you know the players can can vote on the ones they want or pre-buy them, for example. And then the artist gets a commission of, you know, every time the card that they created, every time that is sold. Um, and then we as a company make a commission on the people who buy those cards. Uh, that's not something we're planning on. That's just one idea that we've tossed around. So we're definitely in the wild, wild west in terms of experimentation and monetization models. But um, yeah, I think it's just a matter of time before we or another game company cracks his code and shows hey look this can be much better for the players and it can also be really profitable for the company and then other game companies will come in and try to replicate that it's definitely better for the players like a hundred percent
0: it it's really uh encouraging every time we get to get inside the head of somebody like yourself that is doing all this and is so much smarter than we are and we get to see like just a little sliver of what is going on behind the scenes at some of these different companies and, and what you're thinking about and how you're making your plans and what you're doing. That's like, I don't know. It's, uh, it's probably my favorite part of what we've been doing on the podcast so far is getting, getting to have these conversations here and just see, see the gears turning and how things, how things end up playing
2: out. I don't know. It's exciting. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, This is, we spend, we spend all day talking about this kind of stuff. So you spend enough time thinking about a problem, um, and yeah, you make it your one thing, and you come up with like a lot of really interesting ideas behind it.
0: Yeah, and and ideas that might seem counterintuitive on the surface, but end up once you really think about them, like like you said, the most gaming companies are trying to get you to do a pay to win model, but there there's definitely outliers. Like you don't need to pay to win to league in League of Legends, for instance. You can just Yeah, I think
2: League of Legends is a great model for what we're doing because they've built a revenue model just based on skins, you know, just on cosmetic variants in the game. It does not give you a gameplay benefit, but the gamers who get really into the game, um, they're willing to pay it and it's it's a good revenue model for them. Um, And yeah, I think it's possible that over time these games will start to become the norm and then users will demand that they'll demand that they be able to really own their assets when they're playing a game. And then if game companies refuse to follow that trend, there may be a migration off of those old school style games. Because really, like it's just a better paradigm. Why would you want to spend money for something that you don't actually own and you don't get to keep and you don't have full control over and you can't resell when you want to? It's really just the game companies enforcing a rule onto the users at their expense to to make more money. And that's kind of the same model that Facebook and social networks follow right now. Their only incentive is to keep the users just happy enough that they don't leave the platform the users aren't the customers, it's the advertisers who are the customers. So they're maximizing for ad revenue. And for the users, they just don't want them to leave the platform. But they will change the rules to make the users less happy and increase ad revenue, so long as the users don't get upset enough that they exit the platform. But right. if there's a better model available, then that may become obsolete.
0: Yeah, don't even get me started on Facebook. I We had a 20 minute conversation about how a Fucking downvote button would fix a lot of Facebook's problems, but we understand why they don't want it. <laughs> the. Yeah. It,
1: so. It was unfortunate that Kareem wasn't able to join us today, but you know, in our 101 episode on Loom, he pointed out that there was a game Loom that he remembered from his childhood. And, uh, you were a little impressed that he was able to pick that out. So my question is, uh, I don't know anything about the original Loom game and how did it influence, you know, the future branding?
2: Yeah. So Loom was one of my favorite games. As a child, this isn't this old school LucasArts game, kind of like, uh, you know, Mist or one of those kind of like nonviolent exploratory world puzzle games. Um, it's not like that influenced. That was the reason why we chose Loom as the name of our company. Um, I mean, Loom just as in it's, it's a device that weaves threads together. You know, we're kind of like interconnecting different blockchains. Um, you know, as opposed to this, this model of like one, massive central blockchain we always saw that scalability has to happen on multiple blockchains and then you know they need to be connected together in some way and then i just noticed that and loom also happened to be one of my favorite games as a child so like the nerd in me really likes uh, a throwback of us kind of going with that as our brand name i I think that's an anchoring
1: bias right something you hold on originally and you just love it so much that you, you just can't let it go
2: and actually, what's it's really funny is, um, originally we had, um, a few game prototypes that we were building. And one of them was called Etherborn Blockchain World. And, uh, it was like a 2D side scroller that kind of, as you went through the, the game, the story itself told, it told the story of the benefits of putting a game on the blockchain. So the story <laughs> was kind of that the developers were, sh- had decided to shut down this game world. And as you first, your, your mission is you, you kind of have to, you have to, get this loom token and then you have to exit the world and upload yourself to the blockchain or you're going to cease to exist. Um, and then one of the players like goes full on bitter mode and he decides he's going to hard fork the block or he's going to, he's going to spin up the n- nodes to, to save the world. But then he like, he gets you know, 51% control of the network and he starts enforcing all these crazy rules. And after he did that, he, he transformed into this like, you know, this villain named Chaos, which is the villain in Loom. So I, I put like his little throwbacks in the script. But unfortunately, we um, we intended to just do these three games as kind of small prototype games. Um, and then once we got started on Zombie Battleground, we were like, okay, we're, our resources are really divided right now. This is actually the game that we think is the most promising. Let's turn this into like a full polished, you know, like the the level of polish that users expect from like a full mobile game. Um, and so we kind of had to drop the other projects, but so yeah, unfortunately, the the little Loom references never got exposed to the world. That sounds like a <laughs> perfect way. Anyone who way... played that game would have been like, "Wait, Chaos Loom Network." <laughs>
0: <laughs> I feel like that's a perfect way to explain what you're doing to a gaming company that knows nothing about blockchain. You're just like, "All right, play this game, and uh, and you'll see you'll see what's happening, and you'll see you'll understand what we're doing." Just finish the game and then come back to me.
2: That was kind of the idea. It was almost like a playable tutorial where like by the end of it, you would know through experience kind of like how blockchain games worked and what some of the benefits of, of running them are. It's pretty neat. Actually, I, I bet the final product was uh, pretty decent, but,
1: um, my question is what game do you hope like, all right, if you could go five years in the future and there's a game that like you guys finally had time to devote resources to its final product. It's going successful. Is there any game like pet projects that you're hoping just really can blow up when you have the time?
2: It's it's really this um, world that we were just kind of describing some yeah. sort of expandable interconnected world, um, you know, that would become the spawning grounds for that Ready Player One universe. It's just going to start with one game, in my opinion, and then they're going to build it in such a way that it's extendable and then other developers can build on top of that. And, um, yeah, it's kind of like that you could build another town or another city or another planet. And, and now you've added that to that universe. Someone, someone needs to build this. It's, it's a, it's a pretty massive undertaking. Like I knew very little about game development before we started this company, but, um, yeah, I didn't really games. Games are just super expensive to produce. Um, they require really big teams. Uh, there's a lot of resources. There's long timelines. So it's a pretty massive undertaking. It's kind of like the, the film industry, you know, like feature films are like mm-hmm. really expensive to produce. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the, that's this vision that I'm like, oh man, this is like, this is such an amazing thing, and we can't build it right now because we have so much, so many other things that we're working on. But I'm like, I hope someone takes this up and builds this, or something that we might may revisit in the future if no one does.
0: I feel like there's enough little companies. I don't want to say little, but th- there's enough different companies that are working on different pieces of this. You look at Engine that were kind of pushing the non fungible tokens. You look at Decentraland that was kind of trying to build the VR world. I'm not necessarily I need to do a little bit more research to qualify the statement, but I think they decided to not make it like cool. They tried to make it more Minecrafty. So it won't be a ready player one ever. But they, you know, their thought was cool. So I don't know. There's a lot of there's a lot of companies like yours, like them, that may build different pieces of the puzzle which will lead to that interconnected world. So
2: yeah, exactly. And each one of these kind of <clears throat> um Attacks it from a different angle, has their own, you know, theories on how to go about it, has their own strategies. It's kind of like, uh, yeah, with, with all these different projects working on kind of these interrelated overlapping problems, I think it's really good for the industry as a whole. Um, it'll, you know, set the stage for for more companies to come in, more people to come in and build more stuff.
1: Um, yeah. Uh, I'll tell you what, when it's time to develop that casino, you give us a call. We'll, we'll make <laughs> sure it's done. It's done
2: to your perfection. Don't worry. Well, yeah, I mean, this is already one of the, I think, bigger uses of blockchain so far is gambling. I mean, I'd say so far what we've seen in the blockchain is, um, you know, currency. Like the, the successful use cases of blockchain so far have been in uh, currency and security tokens. But there's a lot of, you know, legal hurdles with those basically tokenized equity. That's just like fully liquid. Um, you know, gambling is a huge one. Even way back from like Satoshi Dice was one of you know, it was a Bitcoin application, and then poker.
0: Had yeah, more recently on Ethereum. Uh, do you remember Clubs of Seals back in the day?
2: I played on Clubs of Seals. Yeah. yeah, after the after the <laughs> one two Bitcoin. Oh, it? was it Black Monday when when the US pulled the plug? Oh, on Black all the, Friday. Yeah, online poker sites. Yeah. Was it Black Friday? Black Friday. Was Friday? Okay. Yep. It was so, tax. Yeah. It was like tax day. How many years? Ago? <clears throat> yeah. Um, but yeah, so gambling is a big one. And then games are the like another one that we think can be even bigger once you remove some of these UX hurdles that we're working on.
1: One of the things that I, I strongly feel is going to push, push mass adoption is you just have to start in the places that are willing to risk you know using new technology for example um you know the adult industry the gaming industry the casino industry these are all people that have mass adopted technology very early in almost all stages of it so it's no surprise that these are also
2: important areas to reach in crypto mass adoption shout out to Spank Chain if you guys haven't covered them yet
1: no so no uh,
2: awesome.
1: stop that, you didn't you didn't just go there did you why we we We've covered them. We did an interview with a cam model for them. Oh, uh, awesome. It's Brent. It's Brent's favorite pet project.
2: No, I think it's awesome. It was. Those guys are also. I think they're super smart on the technology side. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep, I like. I liked everything I read about it. Their ICO was a game theory related ICO. It was all on top of that. It was super cool the way they did that. And i yeah been a spank chain's been like a little pet project of mine for. For a long time, I've loved following that development. Uh, I love watching cam models for research purposes and not like making a joke out of it. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what Brent's happened. The story
1: about getting the interview with Gabby was very
0: interesting. She she was on the the beta, the first live beta that they did. And I just started typing in the chat. I was like, "Hey, I have a podcast. Do you, do you want to?" Uh, like, I I haven't tipped you anything, but and she she decided to come on the show. I was like, "Yes."
2: That's really funny. It,
0: it was really good. Yeah,
2: but yeah. So I mean, that's and that's a really good use case of the blockchain, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah, I won't. I won't go on anywhere political with this, but uh, it's definitely. Why? definitely okay,
0: why? so right, I'm going to tell go you a quick pl- story, which we <laughs> yeah. might even cut out. But Mike was supposed. We were supposed to do a roundtable with just the three of the hosts, right? And Mike ended up winning a poker t- or doing well in a poker tournament, not winning, but he had to cancel on our recording session. So I'm talking to Kareem, trying to figure out what we're going to talk about. And he ninjas me into talking about Trump for an entire episode. So we've been getting emails that are like, what the hell is wrong with you? We don't want to hear about Trump on your crypto podcast.
1: So and sometimes political stuff sli- slips out. Nothing you can do. It's a crypto use case. It's a, It's going to be a huge industry. It's going to be disrupted.
2: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> when actually, I think wasn't porn like one of the first drivers of online payments online. Yeah. I haven't actually – seen the movie but um they, they made a movie about this like the, the guys basically who invented credit card processing I'm, i think it's like it's based on a true story like i think it's true to history that basically they invented this technology to accept payments online and all the companies were like why the hell would we want this and then the porn companies were the only ones who would actually like ship it the <laughs> like
0: finally <clears throat> yeah that that definitely porn has has been there at the forefront of a lot of technology, like video streaming, like a lot of things like that. They've
1: they're the oldest industry, I guess. What all of the industries have in common that we just that we were mentioning for early adopters is that they're all they're all interested in privacy in some fashion. And and that's why they're willing to reach out and try new technologies. I mean, governance is as a as a citizen, it's very important to start holding people in government accountable for their, where their money's coming from, their biases, all of these things, you know, obviously uh, in the adult industry, everybody, everybody's got their own things, you know, and whatever it is, what it is. If you choose, you want to pay for certain things or whatever you form as you deem as entertainment, then go for it. So these things is, they're just going kind to, of why I think that, we have so much farther to go because we're still trying to penetrate those industries.
2: Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And there's a quote from, I think it was Mark Anderson who said like new technologies we found, they start on the fringe. Um, they start with these like small niche subgroups of people who are like kind of outside the mainstream. Um, and that was definitely the case with crypto. You know, you know I think it, so. we're like hardcore staunch libertarians um 'Cause you know, they were the ones who like had the biggest gripe with the way the current system was. But now what we're seeing is, you know, it's going a lot more mainstream. And now you're seeing like a lot more real businesses start to get like, you know, the original developers who I think were amazing, um, and a lot of, you know, the early Ethereum projects, they're just kind of like, Yeah, man, we just want to write code all day, you know, and like just kind of like small, small groups of hackers kind of, you know, building and improving upon the system. Um, and now it's kind of reached a point where yeah, the financial incentives are there to actually bring in, you know, more experienced businesses to be be like, okay, let's take this thing. And let's, um, let's treat this, you know, like a real business. And let's, you know, have like shipping deadlines. And let's really like, you know, push this thing along. Yeah, I think we're reaching that stage now with there's, there's just so many smart minds coming into crypto now and, and building upon it and expanding upon it. That I think we're still on the fringe. I think I know, the community is still very small. It's still on the early adopter curve, but it's like, it's reaching that tipping point.
1: Even this, the birth of this podcast was an example of the three of us having no good media resources to learn crypto on. And we decided to sit down and say, well, if we just found crypto, how would we have wanted to learn? What is the method that we wanted to learn from? And that's where this all came from. We had... You know, if it weren't for Brent, none of this would have been possible. But, you know, it, we didn't know anything about audio recording. We didn't know anything about video. We didn't know anything about podcasts in general. You know, I'd never run a website or anything like that. It's, I just haven't been in that part of the technology field. So, learning what we have to go through to, to make this work because we care so much and want to deliver a good product to people that want to learn, we're willing to jump through those hoops because we have a passion. We see what this can be. Yeah, that's
2: awesome.
0: Yep, I wish we knew how to code, because we'd be coding all night, all day, <coughs> trying to figure out Solidity. I, can, I can't I can even make an Excel script, so...
2: Well, have you tried cryptozombies.io, oh, plug Wait. for Loom Networks programming Wait, course?
0: They have a programming course?
2: <laughs> yeah, this is how we... This is, like, one of the first things we created. This is, like, how we kind of got our name.
0: Wow, um, I didn't... We didn't even mention that in any of the episodes or anything before <laughs> now. So is it is it pretty, like I'm pretty sure we did well, we did okay I'm sorry is it I wasn't on that episode so I don't know was it a is it a paid that,
1: that's course? that's the zombie chain right
2: zombie just kind of became this confusing overarching theme but it all it all started with crypto zombies so basically um, you know we were first just focused on scalability we have to build this network and this infrastructure that can that can handle highly scalable DApps. Um, and while we were working on this a couple months into when we started the project, that's when CryptoKitties came out and, and blew up and was one of the biggest use cases. We had always planned on creating like a a programming tutorial, um, for Ethereum. But then when this came out, um, I was just having a conversation with my co-founder, Luke, like over coffee. And I was like asking him a bunch of questions about the implementation of the smart contract stuff. And, And then he wrote, based on our discussion, he wrote this article about how like your CryptoKitty isn't really yours. Oh, I've read you, that. You don't really own it. Yeah. So that was like a breakout hit for us. And then the next day or t- two days later, I was like, um I wrote an article that was like how to code your own CryptoKitty style game on Ethereum. And I basically just just went through their smart contract and just broke down exactly, you know, how it worked and, and how it was implemented. And it was this massive article and that just blew up in popularity. So these two things blew up for us. And um, yeah, we, we put an opt-in. Where we're like, Hey, we're releasing a solid, how to learn solidity course, you know, opt-in if you're interested. And we got a t- ton of email opt-ins from that. So we were like, okay, this is, this is, you know, there's obviously a lot of interest here. So we based our programming tutorial on how to code your own game, like Crypto Kitties. Uh, and it was called Crypto Zombies. And then that, that just really blew up and, and put us on the map. And, um, and yeah. From that point onward, people started finding us. And they're like, hey, I'm trying to build this game on Ethereum, but I can't because of these UX hurdles and, and scalability issues. Can I use your platform? And that was when we kind of made our pivot into games because that was the first thing we did where we saw some serious traction and people were coming to us and saying, hey, we need your platform. When is it going to be ready? That's so smart. Uh, so you yeah, we still have this. Check it out. So the the chorus is not... Yeah, it's the most popular um, Ethereum coding tutorial online. It gets, yeah, we're getting like 30,000 new users per month. Woo! Yep. Good job, Crypto So podcast. yeah, that's when Brent we were looking at this. That. And <laughs> <laughs> so that's what, yeah, we were looking at this and um, yeah, that's how kind of we know that, you know, this industry is still growing because there's just so many people coming in every single day, learning solidity development, learning to, to build their own games, build their own smart contracts. And yeah, that kind of plays into our thesis as well. Why we think Ethereum is here to stay. Um, that's another one of my most popular articles was Ethereum will be the backbone of the new internet. Where basically I'm saying there, there's a couple core points there, but Ethereum already has so far of a, a lead in terms of the number of developers, developer tools for building apps, um, in terms of standing the test of time. And in terms of being a fully decentralized platform, that we don't see any other platform replacing it at this point as the base layer, as kind of the, the layer one blockchain. Clearly, for, you haven't for... looked into Tron because... <laughs>
0: so, All right, sorry. So this is
2: the thing about every, every other pro- project that's like more scalable than Ethereum subtext sacrifices decentralization. Like they're just, they're not being honest with people who follow the project because, yeah, if it was that easy to scale a blockchain, then Bitcoin and Ethereum would just do it. But when you increase scalability, it's because you're sacrificing decentralization. It's like a law of physics of blockchains. Um, you, you can't get around that unless someone invents some like totally new, you know, technology, um, which a lot of I guess white papers will claim to have done, but they're short on the technical details. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that. So that's why we think Ethereum is here to stay. That you need full decentralization on that base layer and sacrificing that is a mistake. And the way to scale is to build additional layer two blockchains on top of that, Mm -hmm. that are less decentralized and more scalable, but you can always fall back to the base layer for that full decentralization.
0: Yep. That makes perfect sense. I went,
2: I went technical there.
0: No, no, it was, it was so good. I can't even really respond. (laughs) Gave me a chance to make fun of Tron. Gave me a chance to like, to kind of blow my mind a little bit. The uh, you you you've got to dig in there about EOS where there's <laughs> they've claimed everything but are super decentralized and continually break their model and and change things. I don't know. We we have. I I would say that one of the things that is somewhat unique about us, I guess, is we will we will just say bad things about a coin if we think they're bad. Then <laughs> and uh-huh. most content producers will just say the good things because then they want people to like give them money. Also, nobody ever gives us money, so
1: we, There may be a correlation. I don't know. <laughs> hey, we're taking the same approach. We're trying to build the audience, and we're going to try to monetize later.
2: Uh huh. Yeah, I I will say that this might be controversial. I will say that like I do like EOS. Not saying that like I would buy their token or something, but I think even though we, I'd say we're, we're competitors with them, and you know we disagree on a couple of a few fundamental things. I like the fact that they're kind of pushing the envelope and experimenting and it's a crazy experiment, right? No one's quite sure how it's gonna work out. But I think that's really important in the space right now. I mean, it's unfortunate if people get suckered into like putting a lot of money into a token because it's marketed as an investment and then they're gonna lose potentially lose a lot of money. But um, in terms of the technology, um, yeah, I actually think Dan Larimer is really smart Um, we learned a lot from, from Steemit, we, um, Mm -hmm. we modeled parts of our architecture for delegate call after Steemit. Um, but yeah, just the main area where we disagree is we think it's awesome to experiment with, you know, DPoS and different consensus algorithms, but we just say it's better to do that experimentation as a side chain to Ethereum, because then, um, if something goes wrong with the side chain, if all of your data is stored on that side chain, it gets attacked, then we'll tough luck you're you're losing that data if you have a token on there that token's going to go to zero you know like people who put value into that going to go to zero but, but if you use you know ethereum for your tokens as ERC20s and then you can use them as a side chain through plasma or through a transfer gateway yeah now you can do all sorts of uh, crazy experimentation on the side chain and i think that is kind of how best practices are going to emerge is through these layer 2 side chains each kind of coming up with their own rule sets own consensus algorithms and some of them will work much better than others and that'll kind of like be an evolutionary model for how we find like yeah best practices so yeah, i think it's cool that they're experimenting but um yeah our major like i guess fundamental difference is that we we think layer two is the way to go for all this and not to create your own base layer one blockchain Yeah, i wish they would especially if it sacrifices with, decentralization with like What's a billion that? dollars instead of Four or like a hundred
0: million, maybe instead of <laughs> instead of four billion. I wish it was. A little yeah,
1: bit. our biggest fear with EOS is that it raised so much money that if it ends up failing, it could just be really detrimental. It could be a black eye on the industry, in our opinion.
2: Yeah, that's totally
1: true. Anyway. It also like it has the feel that Larimer kind of bounces around a lot, and he's kind of a controversial figure. We've we've given him respect and. You know, shown the sides we're not, you know, a big fan of, but it, and and this could just be how the space is developing. But you know, when somebody is on their fourth crypto project, and this one like found a way to raise the amount of money that it did, it, it, it makes me nervous. And and by all means, I hope it works. I, I actually did buy some EOS early. I currently no longer own any of it, but it, you know, being able to watch the whole situation kind of unfold. Um, has left me like uncertain about the future. So I, I hope they get it together, and I hope that it works, just for the sake of crypto.
2: Yeah, that totally makes sense. And yeah, uh, you know, we just we like to see other projects that are experimenting, um, because if there's new good ideas that come along, then we're like, hey, well, why don't we integrate this into Loom?
0: <laughs> yeah, we. Yeah, you don't want to end up being like the conservative of blockchain, and be like, no, we have to. Do it the way it's always been done. Stop trying to make new stuff. That's kind of uh, the opposite of what the crypto community is all about. So the, it's good. Which to is watch. kind of
2: interesting that you say that because because there's both aspects of that, right? I mean, that is like what's contentious about Bitcoin. Yes, is that Bitcoin is like is like look, it works. It it does what it's supposed to. Um, if if we make changes to this thing, like we don't know if it's going to keep working. We have to be extremely careful about all changes we make. Um, and then you have you know the the be cash? Do I get? Do I get yelled at? <laughs> uh, oh, fork, which um, I think most people who are like in the know would would say is not like a great project. Um, like I mean, it, yeah. If, if I'm taking a side on, that, I'm, I'm, I'm stoned. Take a side. No, no, we're point. we're on we're on your side. Don't worry. Yeah. So I'm saying like um, yeah, being like you know more features better. Is not always great if you're a base layer that has billions of dollars of value of people relying on their tokens like working properly. But then I think, yeah, this experimentation is, is like very necessary. And I think that's why the industry has been kind of slow to evolve is because we haven't had the flexibility to experiment, which I think layer two offers. I re- like really iterate quickly and, and try lots of things.
0: I also really hate this one piece of the crypto community where you had to worry about using the the word Bcash. You're like, oh, sh- oh shit. Okay, am I allowed to use that word on this podcast? Like, holy shit, no. <clears throat> so it, I, I, just, I, I, just I don't remember, want to
1: trigger anyone.
2: Yeah, I just remember seeing the memes about people getting blocked on Twitter if they if they use the wrong word for it.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. the the whole the the whole like we can we can appreciate Bitcoin Cash as a as a project, we can appreciate what it's trying to do. I just don't think it needs to keep pretending to be Bitcoin, and I don't think they need they need to kind of worship Roger in the way they do, or well, it used to be Craig, but I don't know, who knows what's going on there? They got all kinds. Yeah, and of-
2: I'll actually, I'll actually say that. I, I mean, I do think it's it's great that they're able to hard fork and they have their thesis and Bitcoin you know, original Bitcoin has its thesis, and then the market can kind of decide Mm -hmm. what it cares about and and what is more important. So I think like that hard fork ability is is, like an amazing feature. Um, Whether or not you think the fork is valid or legitimate, like, you know, you can just not care about the fork and just use the one that that you want to keep using. But having that ability to be like, hey, we disagree and we're going to do something different. Guys, this is what we're doing differently and this is why we're doing it. And then the market can like look at both and educate themselves and, and yeah, it's, you know, it's the free market at work. Yep. So yeah, even though I, I don't um, agree with them on the block size thing. Um, I think it's great that they're able to hard fork and give people an option who want, you know, a bigger block Bitcoin.
0: Yeah. Totally see where you're coming from with that. All
1: right. One, one more thing that I, I want to get into a little bit. I just want to hear your thoughts. Um, one of our favorite things about crypto is uh, any form of a DAO, a foundation, um these are things that we think are long term going to be super important can you tell me just kind of your philosophy on this topic and you know does loom have any plans to implement anything of this nature
2: so yeah i'm not highly educated on that topic I, it's not an area that you know is within my core focus that i've taken the time to really dive into so we operate loom as a company and i think that allows us to iterate really quickly but what we do plan on doing is opening up the side chains that we create so the plasma chain which we just announced or it, zombie chain got rebranded as plasma chain we will eventually have a dpos system for electing external validators into that system so then it will become a community-owned chain um in the beginning so we can iterate things really quickly and because this is Early stage tech, uh, and it's a lot easier to hard fork something when you control the validators. You know, we're running it ourselves <clears> in the beginning, so we can like iron out all the kinks, fix all the bugs, and get to a stage where we're comfortable putting external validators in there. So yeah, the um, us as a company, we're just a traditional company, but in terms of the actual side chains that we're creating, we're going to open those up to be run by the community as a DPOS chain, and we do we open source. Um, the parts of our product as we go along, as we feel like they're they're fully mature. We don't run everything open source from day one because there's like a thousand other products that projects that would immediately take our code and the next day announce that they created the same thing we did. So just as a competitive edge, we keep things closed source until we feel like we have a technological edge, enough of an edge that, you know, then we open source pieces as we go. But then there's other pieces we just open source immediately, like the Plasma Cache implementation.
0: Yep. Uh, I, you know what? I think that crypto's matured past that. Nobody would ever just steal code and then write a white paper about it. I don't <laughs> think.
2: Mm, didn't wasn't this just like three four months ago that the stuff was happening? <laughs>
1: yeah, of course it's probably still happening. We just haven't looked at any white papers recently. Yeah, no. That uh-huh. no, no, no,
0: no. we we spent plenty of time harping on Tron, and and it's like no, you can take open source code, but don't change the attributions and say it's yours. <laughs> like they, right.
1: yeah, uh, whatever. So. Actually, this is you're a great person to ask this question. So we, particularly with that Tron episode, and uh, we've our research has suggested that plagiarism is is significantly less of a concern in Asia than it is in America. Is there any thoughts
2: you have on that? Any influence or any memory? Yeah, this is bizarre actually because you know I used to I used to work as a teacher in Korea, and I remember at this time I. These were like high school uh, sorry, these are middle school students, and I assigned some sort of writing assignment, and then for each thing when I was grading them, I would just kind of copy and paste a random excerpt of a random sentence in like in the middle of the essay, you know, just some sort of like seven or ten word combination or something. Um, and I would do this at like two or three points in each one. yeah, and I found like probably twenty five thirty percent of the of the papers I just found like straight copy and pasting from online. And I was like, bewildered. I was like, how could they so blatantly just like copy and paste someone else's work? Um, So, yeah, I don't know if it's uh, something different in the culture or in the values where I think I think they just don't view it as a serious offense like we do in the West, because I think um, in the West, we have like a really individualist mentality. Whereas if you create something that is yours and that, that has a lot of value and in Asia, it is a lot more of like a collectivist mentality where the group is more important than the individual. And of course, the you know, the, I'm not meaning to make a vast generalization, you know, because more and more you know people are getting Westernized. But I think traditionally that's the case. And yeah, I think it just there's differences in values where someone might do something like like plagiarism or copying something, and and then in that culture they might not think that's like that big of a deal. If that's that bad of a thing. Whereas in, in the West, we look at that and we're like, what? This is like absurd. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's how our early research started is with Justin's son. And and we had a, I believe we had a listener respond to the episode and say, we, I I think that person came from like a, a, from the West and, and went to Asia and just said they would noticed that that concept just didn't resonate. It didn't exist. So I, I that was a really interesting story you had there. That was kind of cool.
2: Yeah. By, sure. No, i definitely like, learned a lot living in asia in things that like um yeah i think like traveling and living in a different country definitely um kind of expands your mind by exposing you to totally different ideas and at first you're like what this is stupid this is wrong and then as you live there longer you're like oh this is actually just a different way of thinking and it has these drawbacks but it has these benefits and then you kind of see the the holes in the american way of thinking Something that's definitely interesting. So there's this little gif that's been making its
0: rounds on Reddit's Reddit recently. So I'm gonna I'm gonna completely drop crypto and I'm gonna talk about food. Have you been to one of the restaurants <laughs> where they literally bring the table out and like put it on top of your table, or is that bring- just like a one time? Th- it's a, it's a, it was all over Reddit the last couple of days where they it was supposed to be from from South Korea where they t- the instead of like taking the food and putting it on the table, they brought an entire tabletop out and like slid it over top of the current tabletop. Because there's so many, like, random little extra dishes served with Korean food.
2: I'd have to see a visual. I don't think I've seen this, no. <laughs> All Usually right. they just bring out a big tray and then move the things one by one. Yeah,
0: okay. <laughs> so they made it sound like this was a normal thing because it's Reddit and they do things like that. It's <laughs> interesting. <laughs> so back on the topic of food, is there one food that <laughs> you've just you've had it and you're like, man, you need to either find somewhere in the U.S. that serves this. Or you need to get your ass over here and try this food immediately because it blew my mind.
2: Hmm. For Korean food, I guess I'm just so used to it now. This is kind of normal. (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I
1: mean, after 10 years, I would imagine it just seems
2: like all – you've worn out most of the good stuff probably. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Now now I go back to the US and I have culture shock. I'm like, wow, Americans are so like friendly and honest and just – like chatting with strangers like friends this is really weird <laughs> So in Korea people oh. just kind of and so it's a big city too to be fair New York City is probably similar but you oh know, yeah, people' yeah. just kind of like ignore everyone else that they don't know mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm in the US and someone will like greet you on the street you're like oh I don't know this person <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else that
1: either of you feel like touching on this has been a little long but I think it was really excellent.
0: Uh, give us all the
1: ways
2: we and can you follow can... you,
0: and all the ways that we can check out what yeah, you're doing. Yeah, spam away, like, boom.
2: It, um, yeah, basic. I guess Twitter is like our main channel. Um, yeah, I would say follow us on on Twitter. We also have a Telegram announcements channel, but it's the same information that goes out. Uh, if you just Google, like you know, Loom Network Twitter, Loom Network Telegram, we'll, or will uh, have at a the link bottom of all our blog posts. We have links to them. Yeah, um, yeah, we have delegatecall.com which is our q a site that's running on the blockchain so that kind of has its own vibrant community of people asking crypto questions and you know getting quality responses and um questions that get uploaded those users earn delegate call tokens which are in erc 20 so that's kind of our model for social sites you know where you, you can actually like you can actually earn a reward as opposed to just useless karma on that company server.
0: Hey, whoa, whoa. So, yeah. a karma is not useless. It's very great tool that I have a lot I have of. I
2: 10,000 of it. <laughs> it's amazing. Don't
0: tell me it's worthless. I would work
2: hard for it. I have that. a gold star next to my name. Do you know who I am? <laughs> <laughs> but now you could actually import that into other sites, right? Like you could have other... If it's on the blockchain, you could have Yeah, multiple.
1: reputation can carry.
2: Exactly. Yep. yep. All right, well... Thank you. Not to dive us down another thread as we're wrapping up. Yeah, stop.
1: (laughs) Hey, we're respecting your time. We could go on forever. It's, you know, I want to make sure that we're not disrespecting your time. We appreciate you coming on.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. I think that's
1: going to wrap it up for this edition of the Crypto Basic Podcast. Roundtable number seven with James Duffy. My name was Mike. I was here with Brent. Thanks again for tuning in.
0: I know I said it before, but we are not financial advisors. All investments have inherent risk. Please do your own research.